And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's get started with the BRICS summit and the potential expansion that's happening. What's going on? Uh, so, yeah, there was a, the BRICS uh, annual leader summit took place this week in Johannesburg. Four of the five leaders of the BRICS countries attended. Vladimir Putin, of course, skipped because technically the South African government would have had to arrest him uh, because of his indictment at the International Criminal Court had he showed up. So he did uh, in order to avoid putting them into that uh, situation where they obviously would not have arrested him, but they would have taken a lot of heat for it. Uh, he decided to skip. Prigozhin was on his way. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, Prigozhin was, you know, he was flying out. Uh, we can get to that in a second. But um, so four of the five attended. Uh, I think Sergey Lavrov was was Russia's representative. Going into the the summit, there was a talk of the gang trying to figure out how to get around the U.S. dollar and its uh, dominance as a as the global reserve currency, and also talking about expansion. Now, pre-summit, there was a lot of speculation about internal disagreements over the issue of expansion. Uh, you know, China and Russia were really seemed to be pushing. A quick expansion. Of course, there have been dozens of countries that have inquired about membership, and I think 22 or so that have actually applied uh, to join BRICS. So there, there's definitely interest. The uh, Brazilian government was supposedly really dragging its feet on the idea of expansion, worrying, I think, worried about, I think, watering down the influence of the core five countries. Uh, so uh, the summit wrapped up on Thursday, and I think to a great deal of surprise, uh, wound up extending membership uh, invitations to six countries. Uh, so they are Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, who have all been invited to join BRICS. Now, I don't know the details on this. Uh, I'm not sure the details have been ironed out, frankly. I don't know if they're going to be equal members to the five, uh, you know, let's say five OG BRICS countries. Uh, that's not quite accurate. South Africa did join later on, but nevertheless, I don't know if there's going to be a tiered system where the five core countries will maintain some kind of extra influence or prerogative within the block, or if this is going to be uh, a gang of 11 now. I'm, I'm not sure how the governance is going to work. So this is, this is very new. The announcement, you know, was just made not long before we got on here, Danny, and started recording. So a lot of details still up in the air, but this is a, a, big development. It's it's much bigger than I think uh, anyone expected. There, the sense that I got from reading coverage was that there wasn't probably wasn't going to be any expansion. And if there was, it would be maybe one or two countries at most. So to, to invite six countries in is a big deal. Now, what it what it's going to mean for BRICS moving forward is unclear. There is an obvious push by Russia in particular, and but also by China to kind of turn BRICS into the anti- let's say, World Bank or anti, you know, Bretton Woods, uh, anti-West um, kind of financial institution or financial hub uh, for the non-Western world. And this this may actually 
hinder that uh, as much as it's it, it sort of strengthens the block to have these countries join. It also makes governance more difficult if they're going to continue to govern by consensus, which is how it's gone, how BRICS is, is, has been run uh, thus far. It's obviously a lot harder to get consensus among 11 members who have divergent interests. Um, several of these countries, uh, I mean, you know, don't don't necessarily want to become the anti-West. Like they don't want to challenge the West in that uh, direct kind of way. There's it's one thing for Russia and China, uh, but even within the the core five, Brazil, India, South Africa, we're not necessarily on the same page uh, in terms of challenging the West in this way. And certainly, when you get you add countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, they all have their disagreements with the West or with the U.S. in particular, but they're not at a place where they're ready to like sever that relationship uh, and turn adversarial. So this is going to maybe take the block in a, a bit of a different direction. But it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's really too soon to know how anything's going to work or what it's going to mean. But it's a, it's a fascinating development. And I think one that, that definitely bears watching. Yeah, I guess that's all I really have there. That's all, that's all you got to say, Derek. Don't force it, man. That's okay. cool. Let's move on. Let's move on to Modi's India landing on the moon. So yes. this is actually a pretty big news, which I, I haven't seen any coverage of in the West. So why don't you let people know what's There's going on? There's been a little bit, but it's it it is pretty big and but with the potential to be it's very like big. Huge news that um, no one's I mean, covering. Geopolitically, it's it's really big. I mean, India landed successfully a, a lunar rover. Uh, the Chandrayaan-3 uh, at the, the moon's south pole uh, on Wednesday. If people have been following uh, the moon race here, the, the Russian government had sent up its own uh, lander that was supposed to, to make landfall the south pole as well, and they were sort of racing to see who got there first. Uh, that was the Luna 25. That uh, mission failed. It crashed uh, after entering an unstable orbit a few days ago. Uh, so India wins the race here and becomes the fourth country, uh, aside from the U.S., uh, China, and Russia, you know, going back to the Soviet days, uh, to land successfully uh, on the moon. So geopolitically, it puts India in, a, in an extraordinarily exclusive club. Uh, what's really potentially huge about this is there's a lot of scientific speculation that the lunar south pole may contain uh, water deposits. There may be ice crystals essentially embedded in the rock at the southern, uh, the south pole of the, the moon that could be uh, extracted and would become, you know, could become very substantial or very significant for uh, future exploration missions. So it, it's a big for India, but potentially also big just in general for space travel uh, and space exploration to, to get this, uh, this probe down in this particular part of the moon. Hindu nationalism succeeds where Juche communism fails. Derek, what happened with <laughs> North Korea? <laughs> oh, man. You, you know, you got to go there. Uh, yeah, the North Koreans had a bit of a space setback uh, also on Wednesday. Um, their second attempted spy satellite launch this year failed, uh, as the first one did. Uh, according to state media, the, the rocket, the launcher, successfully got through its stage one and stage two separations, but something happened in the third stage. Uh, of the launch that caused it to to fail and crash. It's all about the third um, stage. I'm always saying that. I guess, yeah. If you can't get over that third stage hump, I guess uh, you can't get out there. Kim Jong-un has made it a priority to get a spy satellite into orbit. Now, I say spy satellite. The South Korean military recovered part, I think, of the satellite that they tried to put up 
back in, I believe it was May was the first time uh, or the first attempt and, and said it was really not all that sophisticated. It wouldn't be able to do a lot of, you know, serious surveillance or anything like that but it's still you know for the north koreans this is a, a another a milestone for them i mean it's all it's as much about kind of putting themselves out there and saying hey we're you know we're a space power too uh, as it is about whatever they actually could could get into orbit so the failure uh, is another setback i guess although you know these setbacks are uh, always learning opportunities you're told and and they're planning i guess another launch probably in october uh, that will presumably build off of these two failures and, and try to get it right the third time. Thank you, Derek. Let's stay in the region and talk about Japan, which has started releasing Fukushima wastewater. Yes, on Thursday, uh, the Japanese government started pumping the radioactive water from Fukushima, from the Fukushima power plant, into the Pacific Ocean. After treating it, they insist it's safe. It's not going to harm sea life or uh, irradiate, let's say, the West Coast of the United States. Or I have like grown that. another arm after uh, my trip to Tokyo. Well, <laughs> Is that a problem? That, that's, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, you might want to get that checked out. So, I mean, they, they insist that it's safe. The U.S. government seems to be, you know, taking their word for it. But uh, regionally, there's been a lot of concern from let's say South Korea, from China, from, uh, you know, other countries in the region that are, are uh, putting temporary holds on importing uh, Japanese seafood and, and, you know, expressing other concerns. And, and you know, you, you can measure sort of the heat or the, the intensity of the criticism here by Japan's relationship with these countries. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, this is another one of these things where I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I, I can't really say independently what's going to happen here. But hopefully uh, nobody will be, as you say, growing third arms uh, out on the Pacific or anything like that. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. We will wait and see. Uh, Derek, why don't you give us an update on what's been going on in Sudan? Yes, uh, there's reports of fighting, again, kind of spreading uh, into metastasizing into to other parts of Sudan where it's been uh, concentrated, for, let's say, in the Khartoum region and in uh, West Darfur, and then it moved into sort of South Darfur. Uh, there was fighting in North Kordofan State. Uh, now, uh, I think last week we talked about the the conflict kind of moving into North Darfur State. There's now reports this week of uh, heavy fighting in South Kordofan State. Now, this is not between the military and the rapid support forces. It is rather between the military and a rebel group, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North, which is active in both Kordofan states and is sort of taking advantage, I think, of the conflict between uh, the military and the RSF to try and stake its claim. Uh, the rebels now reportedly control about 60% uh, of South Kordofan state uh, and have uh, been fighting. There's been heavy fighting in the capital, Kadukli. Uh, so just, you know, again, sort of the steady expansion of the conflict, which is, you know, going dis to displace more people and leave a shrinking amount of territory into which they could be displaced safely. In Khartoum, uh, most of the week, there's been a, a running battle going between the military and the RSF 
over the military's armored core base uh, in Khartoum. Uh, RSF fighters reportedly basically seized the base on Monday, but they've been pushed back since then. So the battle is continuing. Uh, this is important because the armored core base is the only facility that the military still controls in Khartoum. RSF has pushed the RSF has pushed them out of pretty much everything else other than the army headquarters. That's sort of the last line, I think, of defense for the for the military. So uh, I would expect the fighting around this facility to be pretty heavy because the military is down to its last couple of footholds in the capital and they're not going to want to give that up. Thanks, Eric. Uh, why don't you also give an update on Niger? Yes. Uh, so late last week, uh, the military leaders from the economic community of West African states wrapped up their two-day summit in Ghana, what to do about Niger, having supposedly agreed on what they called a D-Day for a military intervention to oust the junta. They didn't say when this is or, or you know, even hint at how, how far in the future it may be. And I'm a bit skeptical here because they still don't have an army that's ready to, to do anything. I mean, they, they talk about this standby force that they've supposedly assembled. That doesn't exist. It's still being built. So uh, I think they're still weeks, if not months away from being able to undertake anything like this. There were indications over the weekend that the junta uh, in Niger was maybe softening a little bit on the idea of negotiating with ECOWAS, not to the point that they were ready to uh, pack it in and bring back the old civilian government, but they did allow an ECOWAS delegation to enter Niamey to meet with senior junta leadership and also with the ousted Nigerian president, Mohamed Bazoum. Their prime minister, their appointed civilian prime minister, gave an interview to the New York Times in which he assured, tried to assure the international community, I guess, uh, that nothing's going to happen to Bazoum. Now, the, the junta had threatened to put him on trial, which is one of the things that really reinvigorated the idea of a military intervention. So this that may be a direct kind of uh, attempt to calm things down. He also, uh, the, the Prime Minister Ali Lamin Zain, told the, the Times that the junta has no plans to ally with Russia and or the Wagner Group, which may not matter anymore. We'll get to that. So that that may be another attempt to kind of ease everybody's concerns. Uh, it's unclear whether he was speaking for the junta or just on his own, but I, I doubt that he was freelancing. I, I, I suspect he was he was speaking for the junta. The leader of the junta, Abdurrahman Abdurrahman Tiani delivered a televised address on Saturday in which he condemned ECOWAS for the, for its sanctions, which uh, really do seem to be taking a bite out of the civilian population in Niger, and also proposed a three-year transition back to civilian rule. Now, ECOWAS pretty quickly rejected that idea. And, and in the past, in the cases of Mali and Burkina Faso, they've insisted on two-year transitions. Uh, but, I mean, that's a matter of negotiation, right? That's a matter of trying to find a common ground. Uh, so I, Tiani may have floated three years as his opening offer in some sort of uh, negotiating process that would, if it if it takes hold, at least delay the, the notion of a military intervention, if not forestall it completely. So um, I think, you know, things are still kind of uh, in a holding pattern. ECOWAS has referred to the three-year proposal as a provocation, which suggests it's actually, uh, may actually have pushed them closer toward a, toward a military intervention. Um, I think there's, there's an opening here for talks, but we'll see if uh, anybody takes it. 
All right, Derek, the time everyone has been waiting for, time to talk about a money-making player that ain't with us no more, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Yeah, I mean, you know, a clear case of if you, you come at the king, you best not miss. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin is most likely dead. We still don't have confirmation of this. Uh, of course, we talked about it uh, in our special yesterday, but the plane uh, that he's believed to is believed to have been aboard, uh, the private jet crashed in Russia's Tver region on Wednesday. There's still, as I say, there's still no confirmation. The bodies have apparently been collected. I don't know uh, if they've been able to ID any of them for certain, but the passenger list included Prigozhin, six other senior members of Wagner's leadership, uh, and then three crew members. And of course, nobody survived. There's been no indication from Wagner uh, that Prigozhin is still alive. You would think, you know, if he wanted to prove it, he would release a video or something to say, hey, I'm still here. Rather, we've seen actually some impromptu, like, memorials to to Prigozhin pop up in a number of places. Uh, I've seen Wagner fighters, purportedly anyway, video of them laying flowers at these little, like, shrines to Prigozhin. Just very kind of bizarre behavior for a mercenary boss, but whatever. The The speculation is still heavily, t- leaning heavily toward the, the idea that this was a deliberate act by the Russian government to take Prigozhin and his, uh, his other uh, senior officials out. There's some question whether it was uh, done via an explosive on board the plane. There are U.S. officials who I think spoke to Reuters on Thursday, who say they believe it was uh, a surface-to-air missile, that they just shot it down. But there's another report circulating. The Wall Street Journal, I think, had it uh, about a bomb on the plane. But who knows at this point? We're, I think everybody's just kind of speculating. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's not that much more to say uh, about this that we didn't uh, cover yesterday or that you know remains to be seen, I guess, uh, moving forward. But we can just leave it there. Yeah, everyone, check out our special on Prigozhin, and uh, let's let's drop this now. We're going to have Mark Ames on in the next few days to talk about this as well as a special, so please keep your eyes open and your ears to the ground for that. Uh, <laughs> all right, Derek, let's, uh, let's give an update on the war in Ukraine, and finally, our friends in Norway are coming through. They must have gotten our messages. I think they must have. Yeah. I mean, on the ground, uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive made a little bit more progress this week. There's a village, uh, Robotinia. Uh, I believe I'm, I'm not butchering that too badly, uh, which is in Zaporizhia Oblast. Uh, they've retaken it. They've, uh, apparently they've shown video. They've re- released video, uh, you know, raising the flag over the, the, the village or whatever. And, and, uh, uh, it seems to that, that seems to be the case that they have, uh, retaken it. This, of course, moves them a little bit further along the road toward Melitopol, which is this the city that is generally believed to be the main goal uh, of the Ukrainian offensive. Now, uh, I mentioned that because there was a wild piece in the Washington Post over the weekend. Or, well, actually, it was late last week. I shouldn't say over the weekend. Taken, you know, basically transcribed from uh, U.S. intelligence sources that U.S. intelligence community now believes the Ukrainians or it assesses that the Ukrainians are not going to make it to Melitopol. They're going to their their offensive is going to lose steam uh, and peter out before they get there. Um, it, it's really part the, the piece is part of what has been a somewhat shocking turn in the last week or so, or maybe 
two, two to three weeks from the narrative of, you know, the counteroffensive is fine. It's just taking a little longer. It's going a little slower, but it's still good. Don't worry to the Ukrainians are the and blaming the Ukrainians quite explicitly that the Ukrainians are screwing everything up. They're doing it wrong. And by doing it wrong, the message is apparently they're they're unwilling to just see massive numbers of soldiers killed to break through Russian defensive lines. And, and uh, you get the sense that U.S. officials or Western officials more broadly are, are flabbergasted and frustrated that the Ukrainians won't just send more of their soldiers in to die uh, in, you know, kind of waves of, of uh, massed human uh, formations. That's been interesting to watch unfold over the last couple of weeks, I will say, in the, the way this is being covered. Uh, and now, you know, you're getting stories like they're not going to make it, it's going to fail. And uh, it's because the Ukrainians are, you know, they've they've misallocated their forces or they're not, you know, putting enough soldiers in the front line or this or that. I mean, this is an operation that uh, I think I've said this before. The U.S. military would never have undertaken because uh, the U.S. military never does anything when it doesn't have complete air superiority. And the Ukrainians were never going to have complete air superiority. So but but U.S. military planners urge them to go forward anyway. Uh, and we're seeing the result of that, I think. So uh, kind of interesting that uh, that we're now taking to blaming uh, the Ukrainians for screwing things up. How dare they? Uh, Derek, <laughs> now on the F-16 issue, which is uh, what you were uh, yeah, alluding yeah, to, Danny, the um, Biden administration on Friday finally granted permission to uh, governments that want to provide F-16s to the Ukrainians. Denmark and the Netherlands were the first two to jump in the pool. They are planning to supply a, a very small number of F-16s, I have to say, uh, over the next three years. I don't mean to laugh, but it's sort of uh, all the buildup for this. Denmark has 19 F-16s to give the Ukrainians, and they're going to do it over three years. So they're going to give them six by the end of this year, eight next year, and five in 2024. The Netherlands has 42 F-16s total, and I don't know how many of them they're, they're actually, I don't think they've decided uh, how many they're actually planning to pledge and at what rate they intend to give them uh, to the Ukrainians. Norway has now become the third uh, European government or NATO member to, to say it will supply F-16s. Uh, they announced that on Thursday, uh, but said that they will probably give Ukraine less than 10 F-16s. I don't think at these numbers this is actually going to make that much difference uh, in this war, especially if you're talking about them arriving over a three-year period this seems like uh we've built up the f-16 as this you know kind of big uh change or this thing that's going to fundamentally alter this conflict and i just don't see it uh so far maybe uh some other country will you know em emerge with an offer of like 200 of these things that could really make a difference but uh i i just uh, i'm skeptical at this point Let's uh, finish up with a new Cold War update, and let's talk about the Camp David summit with Japan and South Korea. Yes, this is uh, much less substantial than the BRICS summit, as it turns out. But they did, uh, you know, Joe Biden, as we said last week, had uh, invited uh, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio to Camp David uh, for a summit that was intended to strengthen primarily the South Korean-Japanese relationship, which they've, they've sort of made some headway on. Uh, so far this year, but but the three-way alliance 
they uh, released at the end of the summit, they released what they called the Camp David Principles, uh, in which they agreed to strengthen uh, trilateral economic and security cooperation. They agreed to establish a security hotline uh, between the three countries and a, a duty, what they called a duty to consult uh, one another over potential security issues in uh, the Asia Pacific region. Uh, a lot of what they seem to to say in terms of the the end of summit statement uh, focused on North Korea, which is a, a little bit easy. It's sort of more uh, kind of lower hanging fruit, I guess, uh, for everybody. But they did issue a fairly strongly worded statement about China, in particular uh, Chinese activity in the South China Sea, which is interesting for South Korea, which tends to be more reticent about criticizing. Uh, the South Korean government tends to be more reticent about criticizing China. Uh, but I guess, uh, you know, we're moving in that direction. And I think, you know, ultimately for Biden, for the U.S., uh, this is not bringing South Korea and Japan together is definitely not about North Korea so much as it is uh, about China, whatever, you know, the South Korean government may may think of it uh, for the U.S. This is uh, always about China. Thank you, Derek. And let's end with uh, the Chinese military exercises that have occurred around Taiwan. Yes, the Chinese military started over the weekend uh, around military exercises that were uh, characterized as uh, the Chinese uh, response to uh, the stopovers by Taiwanese Vice President William Lai Ching-te. Uh, in his, uh, he stopped twice in the U.S. as he was uh, heading to and from uh, Paraguay last week. There was a, a fair amount of consternation about how China would respond here. Lai is not just the vice president of Taiwan. He's also the favorite to win next year's Taiwanese presidential election. So he's a he's a significant figure. Uh, and of course, China has responded, had responded fairly heavily uh, to other diplomatic interactions in, in the last couple of years between the U.S. Uh, and Taiwan. In this case... Um, you know, the exercises did draw criticism from Taiwan and the U.S. Uh, Taiwan went so far as to, to accuse the Chinese government of election interference, again, because uh, of Lai's status as a, as a candidate in next year's election. But really seems to have been fairly subdued, the, the response. Um, the, the exercises were somewhat provocatively placed geographically in terms of their proximity to Taiwan, but uh, nowhere near some of the stuff we've seen in the, in the past, uh, especially last year with the Pelosi visit and with Tsai Ing-wen's stopovers in the U.S. So uh, a relatively muted response, I think, which is uh, probably the best outcome anybody can hope for. Thank you, Derek. Your knowledge never ceases to amaze me. And everyone, thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.